Malcolm Honline is executive vice, excuse me, Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us Fridays for the weekly update. This is the final weekly update of the year. How do you like that? Followed by Rabbi Yudin, who has a uh, lengthy, uh, comprehensive conversation regarding Rosh Hashanah that's coming up here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Malcolm, you there? Yep. Oh, there you go. Mr. Holine, welcome back to JM and the AM. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be with you. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, UN Week, we'll start with that. Um, I know you always take advantage, uh, rightfully so, and uh, to the, um, uh, to the uh, really often for, with positive results for our community, of the uh, government officials that are in New York from around the world during this UN Week, United Nations General Assembly. Could you give us a perspective on some of the meetings you've had this week with world leaders? Uh, I'd be happy to, although, like everyone else, I suffered from their presence here in New York. <laughs> and Traffic. I walked uh, many miles, so it probably was good for my health, but <laughs> very, very bad for the timing. And um glad to see that uh, most of them have left already and the streets are beginning to open up. So um, we met, obviously, with the Prime Minister of Israel, who came for two days. He went back because his son is getting married today, wow. and he had a rush back. So right after his speech, he, he left. Uh, he he had a number of bilateral meetings, including with uh, with Erdogan, the president. Only came for a day, and did not have any bilateral meetings, uh, except for I think Prime Minister Truss from Great Britain, who was brand new. And um, other than that, I don't believe he had any others. He did do a reception for the visiting dignitaries. The uh, we did meet with. Uh, quite a number of the leaders from South America, from Asia, from the Arab world in particular. And I have to tell you about last night, there was a reception for the foreign minister of the UAE hosted by the uh, um, mission, their mission to the United Nations. And they had a kosher table there. <laughs> oh, wow. Now, I know people may think it's not a big deal. I mean, kosher food in New York. But if you think about it, that an internal event where 90, 99% of the people were other dignitaries, Muslim leaders of all kinds, and, and they had a whole table of kosher food and with a, a, a sign from about uh, the supervision. Unbelievable. And, and it is. It is a sign of... of a remarkable sign of, of courtesy. I don't think anybody ate from the kosher table. Uh, they, in fact, had it in the boxes there because I think the staff didn't think that they should uh, open it up. Um, but the gesture, I think, is very significant, uh, along with other things that happened during the week. I met the foreign minister of Egypt. I met with the uh, leaders of, from from. Uh, uh, maybe five or six of the Muslim countries, uh, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan. Uh, we we read Bahrain, uh, eat, uh, as I mentioned, Egypt, Jordan, uh, others that were uh, very productive because here you have a one-on-one -on -one discussion. Many of them, most of these last <coughs> more than an hour, and and they take it very seriously. We, we go in-depth in the issues, and you're able to, you know, to hear where people really are coming from, not the sound bites that you get on on television. 
uh, and the change in atmosphere, the, the prospects that people see for the future relationships in the region uh, is uh, is very positive. All right, so that, 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 that Iran is the dominant issue in most of our conversations. Atmosphere is really the the crux of this entire topic. Uh, the UAE uh, gestures you just mentioned, boy, does that tell us something about atmosphere? But in general, you know, you and I have spoken during UN Week over the last few years, and, and there's always a different type of atmosphere. There's an atmosphere when the Prime Minister of Israel speaks, and when he comes with an important message. I don't know if this year one can classify what the Prime Minister had to say as an important message, but in past years we've had that, and a lot of people, including the media, focused on that. Uh, there's also been um, uh, episodes where, um, uh, where we've discussed the possibility of the PA lobbying for statehood and if that atmosphere, you know, was the right or whatever word you want to use, atmosphere for it at that time. Describe the atmosphere. I mean, the UAE thing is wonderful. I get it. But is it all about Iran now? And when, when world leaders are gathering in New York City in September of 2022, is it all about Iran right now? Well, I wouldn't say all, but I would say that <clears throat> that is still the prime issue and an undercurrent of every discussion. And there's a lot of concern, in the, especially amongst Middle Eastern countries, uh, that there is still a deal on the table. Uh, obviously, the administration wants to put it off until after the <clears throat> November mid-year elections. And that clearly is going to happen. But... Not that the deal is dead. So far, the United States has not conceded on some of the key points that the Iranians are pressing, including a guarantee that any future administration will not make changes and will will have to honor the deal as this administration negotiated it. The uh, Also about the recognition of the IRGC um, as a foreign terrorist organization. But I think that that has um, been diminished because the administration has indicated, uh, or the negotiators, that many of the IRGC companies would be taken off the sanctions list. So, in effect, you get they get the relief without actually getting the recognition of um, IRGC, but I don't think that that is as important to them. Um, and there are other conditions, you know, the IEA's inspection rights, and so far the International Atomic Energy Agency is being holding a hard line, and I think it's thanks to the head, Grassi, uh, about the right for inspections and and. Uh, these are things that the uh, Iranians say to reject. And a lot depends on what the Russians want Iran to do. And the latest reports were that the Russians are now moving more in favor of a deal because the concessions would better fit their um, tactic for bypassing the sanctions via Iran. But that's still unclear. It was Russia that pressed them not to accept the deal uh, in recent weeks. Also, the internal situation in Iran is going to dictate a lot. We have massive demonstrations going on, triggered by the murder of the woman, but uh, not exclusively related to that. This is something that's been building up and pent up, and today will be the critical day. Many people have been killed already in the demonstrations, but today, Friday, and usually later in the day, the later part or the latter part of the day is really by pro-government forces and uh, elements, which the government forces people, employees of the state, which is a large percentage of the people, uh, are forced to come out and demonstrate for the government. And we expect uh, to see more clashes with the Pasigi and, and the militias uh, against the, the, the anti-government demonstrators. But the numbers are large. More than 200 cities saw demonstrations already. 
and it, and it is growing, and it's not to be dismissed, and that obviously will have an impact on all the issues, or their foreign affairs and policies uh, will stay the same, but the ability to, to to address it, the economic conditions are clearly terrible there, and uh, <clears throat> as are uh, the, the availability, food products, medicines, other things, not because of the sanctions, but because the government is so corrupt and, and all of the money and huge monies that inflowed because of the rise in oil income. So we're at the, but amongst the other issues, obviously the, you know, Palestine issue comes up, but it's more pro forma than it is um, uh, seen as a, a priority. Obviously the comments of the prime minister saying, calling for a two-state solution, put a renewed focus on it. And I think it's, going to be more interesting to see what the domestic Israeli reaction is to that, uh, given the election coming up, and obviously the opposition is jumping on it right away, um, but we'll have to see what what the, what impact that has. The leaders we met with were impressed by other parts of the speech, the tone and the the um, uh, content. He was very strong on, on Iran, uh, but... It's very different than the tone and, and the nature of the speeches that we saw from Netanyahu over the years at the, uh, in the UN platform. So uh, I, I think that um, the overall situation that we've discussed, like South America, only gets reinforced by our discussions to see the expanding role of China, the expanding role of Russia, the role of the Ukrainian-Russian issue is central to, to almost all the discussions and the implications of what it will mean for energy, for Europe, for others. Uh, other countries, the um, alternative supplies, a lot of which put Israel in the center light, and the, the desire expressed by many to expand the circle beyond the Abraham Accord countries to much broader bases for uh, relationships and building ties. Do you think this and, week and moved that together. along? Do you think this week moved that along? I do. Based on my discussions, yes. And And those will be formal ties. Those will be similar to what the UAE has done. It may not be uh, parallel to what was done by the Abraham Accord countries, meaning full diplomatic relations, but right. relations, and that will come. I mean, I think it's not a, a litmus test as whether you exchange ambassadors as much as if you exchange businessmen. And you yeah, and you, you see now UAE people, there was a delegation from Indonesia of 10 people, important businessmen in Israel. Those things are really very significant and, and perhaps more groundbreaking until you get to the point where diplomatic relations are feasible. See, that's why, and again, obviously personal politics plays a role in, in all these statements, but trying to be objective for a moment, or at least more objective than usual, that's why it is, to me, unusual that the Prime Minister of Israel went ahead and emphasized this issue of the two-state solution the way he did. I mean, I know that he did mention that you know they would only agree to a two-state solution if the other state would be peaceful. I get that. But uh, it, it just, w when one looks at the direction of how to make peace and how to, you know, how to um, have reliable peace partners, I would have to assume that since the last time a two-state solution was really popular, I would have to assume that it has waned in popularity because of the Abraham Accords and because of the, uh, you know, c complete um, uh, lack of desire on the part of 
of the PA to you know be in negotiations with Israel. He, it, it sort of sounded to me like you know Back to the Future. He, he's living in the past, and you alluded to it that people in Israel now you know they're going to be this will be one of the issues that they you know take with them to the polls, and I would have to assume that they'll be much strong, much more strongly against it now than they would have been ten or fifteen years ago. So I think that um, th- th- there are various dynamics that are involved in this, <clears throat> and I think it'll take time to see how it plays out. But remember the constituency to which he is playing. He's not trying to get Likud voters. He he needs to uh, shore up his his uh, center and left, and th- this obviously is an appealing um, uh, cause for the for that. The I think the majority of people in most of the polls show that they would accept uh, um, or would like to see negotiations or some movement towards these people tired of the violence and stuff. But I think most are skeptical about a two-state solution at this point because nobody really defines it yet, what it will mean and how it it could be implemented, uh, especially when you have a a partner that doesn't want to talk and I, so in, in some will say that diplomatically this puts the onus on, on them and shifts right. it. But the bottom line is Israel will always be held to account, and you don't see a change. You don't hear condemnations of the commission of inquiry. Even the prime minister, by the way, didn't condemn it in his remarks, uh, which is really a very serious uh, potential threat for Israel, um, given that they have almost unlimited budget, almost uh, unlimited mandate, and, and a staff and time to do nothing but prosecute Israel, along with the other commissions at the United Nations. And I think the, um, uh, so in, in Israel, how this will play out will depend upon who, who you see as the target for his audience. So I think he's, he's looking more to get votes from Gantz voters or from others, and this um, put him in as a, a, quote, diplomat, and maybe um, will shore up his uh, his appeal to this center and center left. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, I, I I just uh, it sounds the way you're 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 saying it. It sounds like you really don't believe this is the way to get to the center. That this is not the way to attract centrist voters. But maybe I'm just reading into it. Well, you have to stand out, and when you have a crowded field like this, when you have you know one vote, two uh, man, one or two mandates separating the parties, you know they they struggle over small percentages. Because most people are locked in on who they want to vote for by now in Israel, you know, and so the shift is is uh, just for a small percentage. The same thing with Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. The bulk of their voters are going to vote for one party or the other and have made up their mind. Either the only thing option they have is to stay home and not vote. But so you're always fighting over a very small percentage of the total vote. Are you going to be in Israel uh, election day, or you haven't decided yet? Well, I can't vote anyway. But no, I'm just curious. I'm going to be in Israel before, but <laughs> I generally stay away because everything you say, if you blink the wrong way, everybody interprets it somehow. No, I'm just curious because there is something about that energy seven to ten days before the election that I think is un- unmatched anywhere. Although, now it being the fourth, fifth, or sixth election in, in two years, maybe it'll be different this time around. Yeah, I'll be there within ten days before the election, but... Election Day itself, I hope not. Yeah. And do you agree with me that that enthusiasm or the... It's amazing how, how, how people get involved and everywhere you look, you see the signs and the posters. But do you think the rhetoric will be toned down? Or will it be less interest because there have been so many elections recently or that doesn't happen at the last minute? No. No, this it'll one be just a strong. will be... Well, I think it'll be stronger in the sense that you're, you have 
multiple can right. multiple parties vying in uh, in within the same realm, and you know I think the rhetoric between the parties is going to get very hot. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. What do you make of the uh, the declaration by Vladimir Putin to uh, start a partial military call-up, essentially a draft, as his next move in the war with Ukraine? Look, I think the whole situation there is, uh, and I've talked to people in Russia and people who are obviously were experts on it. Uh, I'm not, I can't uh, decipher uh, the enigma of Russia um, and what exactly he's doing. He plays it very close to the chest. Why he would announce it, because till now he's pl- tried to play it very quiet and they've been drafting people from, uh, not from Moscow or Leningrad, not from the big cities, but from outside where it may not be felt as hard. But it's clear that he's desperate for troops and the people are not volunteering. In fact, if you see the mass exodus of people from Russia because they don't want to serve and uh, and willingly go in front of press and others and say it, uh, the you know there is a crackdown domestically as well against opposition. Uh, this is not a popular thing, a popular war. It was in the beginning, I think, much more so and more appealed to nationalistic fervor. This is, I think, beyond that point. People are beginning to find that their sons are not coming home. Uh, I don't think that most families know that their kids are not going to return because, as you know, many of the bodies are burned and not reported. Uh, and the numbers are in the tens of thousands of soldiers lost by the Russians in, in the Ukraine uh, war. So it's uh, it, it hasn't played out, let's say, in the availability of goods in Moscow, Leningrad, and other cities, it may in more rural areas. Uh, the um, inflation obviously impacts them as well, but they've had a lot of oil income, and generally food and other things are available. So you have, uh, you know, till f- people feel the uh, impact directly in terms of their own lifestyles, and that, that, I think, is beginning to happen. You're seeing the opposition growing, and... You know, a, a failure in this war now with all of the they've invested, and it's not just calling up manpower. You have to have equipment that works. You have to really have tactics that can withstand the the uh, charges that, that the Ukrainian army are making against the areas held by uh, Russia. So it's a shifting situation. You also have to know that uh, that there are superpowers that are willing to fund this thing, it seems, you know, almost... Uh you know, without end, uh, the U S quite inv- remarkable, right. At a time when, when some of those were power or most of them are facing real economic uh, problems. I have to say the European leaders we met with were very optimistic about their, the availability of uh, energy for the year, for this winter. Uh, many of them said they did not think that there was going to be a problem. Many made arrangements in advance. They have to pay for it more, but they seem to be, uh, much more confident than we had anticipated. We thought this would become a major leverage point, and Russia, you know, is willing to pay the price to shut off the oil, and it means that that income. But you have to think that after the war, once countries become independent, they're not going to rush back to buy <clears throat> oil and gas from uh, from Russia. 
Yeah, I hear that. This draft conversation has reopened, or I should say reignited, the uh, conversation about Putin going nuclear. And that's a scary thought, whether it's this time of year or not. Obviously, things are more sensitive this time of year because we think of uh, this, this is the time of year where we think of our own mortality. Uh, but this is just the fact that it's, again, you know, a hot topic, so to speak, is pretty scary. What do you think of the more likelihood now that he would make a move like that after what happened this week? I do not believe that he would uh, actually resort to using a nuclear weapon that will cross every red line. It will certainly mobilize in Europe and much of the world. Uh, remember, half the countries of the world haven't even taken a stand on this yet. Uh, and uh, while they only focus on Israel, which has been very supportive and done a great deal, um, they, they, most of the countries have not taken even a stand. Any, and the, the issue of the nuclear battle was because he, nuclear threat, it's because he raised it very specifically. And I think that this is, um, you know, going to mobilize the opposition to him in, in the West much more. It's, it's not a smart tactic at the very least. Uh, what do you think of the 60 Minutes uh, conversation where Raisi, uh, leader of Iran, was asked if he believed that the Holocaust happened? He uh, did not have a direct answer to that question. Well, he had a, 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 there is an answer within the answer. The very fact that he doesn't say explicitly, he does say that there's evidence that something happened, but it would have to be studied. I mean, 80 years after the Holocaust, if he's not convinced that the, it really happened. And, and the Holocaust denial is commonplace. There's, in fact, the cartoon contest again being organized now, as we speak in, in, in Tehran, where they invite people to send in cartoons about the Holocaust in particular, uh, where they mock it and they deny it. A Holocaust denial is widespread. And I, I've had an interesting occasion to talk to some uh, diplomats this week from the Muslim world, and they talked about the fact that, you know, it had been commonplace for people to to deny the Holocaust took place or that it was a manipulation, that maybe something happened, but it was. And now, the facing the reality, when you saw the picture of the foreign minister of the UAE bowing his head at Yad Vashem, and as I said, I met him last night, and he is not given to those kind of grand gestures and they talked about the personal impact on them people who were with them uh, of the visit to Yad Vashem above all the else they did in Israel they really felt that, that and that was publicized widely it was broadcast to, to the country now Holocaust education is being introduced in many of those countries uh, where it had become a given that Holocaust denial exists and Iran continues to promulgate the Holocaust denial themes especially on the internet and through a wide variety of their of their web the websites the hateful websites that they create you know malcolm and again it's uh, being almost our rosh hashanah maybe it makes me think more like this but with all the all the problems and all the difficulties and so many of them we get a chance to discuss each week and 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 the hatred and the uh, you know holocaust denials you just said and the anti-semitic episodes i mean you know we're going into rosh hashanah we have to be vigilant everybody needs to be vigilant about jewish institutions and obviously especially our synagogues as we get set uh, to start the new year on Sunday night. And uh, with a big shout-out to the NYPD and all those across this country that try their hardest to protect all citizens and pay special attention 
during the high holidays to our community. And, and with all these problems and uh, everything that's going on, there's, there's just an air, an atmosphere of some type of recognition of Israel that's going on that seems to be uh, you know, moving forward, as you described, throughout the world. And... Uh, I guess because of social media and the immediacy of things, you know, a lot more people recognizing uh, the greatness of our tradition and our heritage. You know, it's funny. We spend so much time talking about the difficulties and the dangers that are facing our worldwide community. Sometimes you have to just look back, especially on a day like today before Rosh Hashanah, look back and see the direction that God is taking the world in. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. As you know, I've I've raised this theme many times and start off with the positive. I mean, we shouldn't take it for granted. I just saw a study that showed a survey of of newspapers at 75 United States colleges. Only 17% of almost 1,500 articles published about Israel were positive. They are overwhelmingly negative and hostile, and they're silent on anti-Semitism and discrimination against Jews. And we're talking about what influences uh, the next generation. And it means that we still need uh, to do a great deal here to fight the rising and continued rise of anti-Semitism, the hostile elements with Iran and many others uh, behind it, uh, and and Hezbollah now on Israel's borders, as we saw in Syria and Lebanon. The the threats are there. And so in our Tfilot, we have to be to recognize the good and the a lot of positive that um, is the positive developments of the past year and that we can look forward to with hopefully with confidence, but there's got to be greater vigilance, not only in security of our institutions and individuals, but the trends that are, are current, uh, which are very troubling, and to see the growing acceptance in many circles of increasing levels of the anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric and comments, and also the rising... Uh, tone of, of opposition, the acceptance of the IRA definition, the other measures that are, are being taken. So it's a balance, and it's every year a balance, you know, that we open up uh, the books on both sides and, and assess, and then people have to assess what is their responsibility, how do they play a role um, to to act against the things, how do we support the people in Iran now who with their protests, and, and you hear almost no background and noise uh, and and all these human rights and other groups standing up for the women in Iran who are doing extremely courageous things and for others. So the hypocrisy is just so blatant and the double standards are so rampant uh, that it's not a time for us to sit back. Uh, it, we, it is essential to recognize the progress because that encourages people to do more because there's much more we can accomplish the need is even greater. It seems like the bad stuff and the good stuff are both moving forward like rapid fire. That may be the difference (laughs) today. They're both, I mean, talk about, you know, going viral. Uh, The bad stuff's going viral regularly, and the good stuff, thank God, is going viral regularly, and it's sometimes hard to uh, keep up with either one, frankly. But, uh... Hopefully in the new year we'll be able to. I take this opportunity to wish you a happy, healthy, sweet new year. We should uh, continue. You know, I'm doing this now. Um, uh, Erev Rosh Hashanah is my 39th anniversary, and you have been part of this for the majority of these years. So I thank you for that and wish you and your entire family a happy, healthy, and sweet new year. And to you and yours and a healthy year. And to thank all the people who stop me and say that they listen. 
which is why we we bothered to do this uh, early on a Friday morning, <laughs> and that it's at the service. And we hope, please, talk to your kids over Shabbos. Talk about these issues. Don't take for granted. They don't know, and they have to hear. They have to hear the good and the bad, and tell them about the, the things we discuss and, and read so that you can, um, and Jewish World Review and many other great sources. We have great publications now that are reliable in our community. People should take advantage of them and really make sure that our kids understand what the world, what's really happening in the world. Yeah, 100%. Thanks so much for a wonderful Shabbos and a great Yom Tov. Shabbos and a good year. And a uh, good year, and we hope to speak again next week. Uh, Erev Shabbos Shuva here at JMNAM. Our first uh, JMNAM of the year will be Wednesday on Som Gedalia, and our first weekly update of the year will, please God, be uh, next Friday right here at JMNAM.